Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and perspectives from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we speak with a Syrian refugee stranded at Kuala Lumpur International Airport. We hear about church groups trying to preserve ethnic languages in Myanmar. We discuss the cybersecurity bill and online expression in Vietnam. And one of our writers reflects on the practice of Islamic exorcisms used as a so-called cure for homosexuality in Indonesia. For over six months, 37-year-old Syrian asylum seeker Hassan Al-Khantar has been stuck in limbo at Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Hoping to be resettled in Canada with the help of family and friends, Hassan has taken to posting humorous takes on life in the transit lounge on his Instagram and Twitter accounts. His social media posts have made people around the world aware of his predicament and also helped recruit volunteers from Malaysia and Canada to work on his cause. Adam Bemmer met with Hassan at Terminal 2 of KLIA. For six months and counting, Hassan Al-Kantar has called Kuala Lumpur International Airport home. The Syrian refugees' living room is a shared seating area in Terminal 2's domestic transfer lounge. His bedroom is a small space under an escalator. Despite being deprived of privacy and a good night's sleep, Hassan remains optimistic. It's more than a statement. I'm just uh, trying to show the people that you can turn uh, any negative problem you are in into your uh, interest and to make it a positive. Better to uh, fight with love uh, and smile than with uh, hate and anger. For 11 years, Hassan lived in the United Arab Emirates. A pacifist, he refused to return to Syria during the country's civil war to serve his compulsory military service. Because of this, he was effectively forced into exile. In October 2017, Hassan was deported from the UAE after his work permit expired and sent to Malaysia, one of the few nations to grant Syrians visas on arrival. While in Malaysia, Hassan overstayed his tourist visa. He paid a penalty and flew to Cambodia, but was refused entry and sent back. Since then, he has been stuck in the transfer lounge at Terminal 2. A group of Canadian volunteers have reached out to Hassan. They've applied for him to be resettled in Canada under the Refugee Sponsorship Program. He could be stuck at the airport for another two years. I'll never lose hope. Uh, If you think asking for what you believe, it's your right as a human in this world. is an easy thing. You are sadly mistaken. It's uh, surrender or giving up is not an option. Just come from seeing Hassan at Kuala Lumpur's airport. Angela Carson is an American living in Kuala Lumpur. The two have become close friends. I was the very first person to actually sit down with him. And it was, it was quite sketchy, for lack of a better word. He felt like he was in peril, that he wasn't sure if he would be taken away into custody. I think things are a bit better for him now. He doesn't feel that, that he's in jeopardy. Carson believes Hassan would make a great Canadian. I see him as someone who's going to fight and help others 
for the rest of his life. I mean, he's changed my life and my perceptions. I, I think he's going to do that for a lot of people. Hassan refuses to seek asylum in Malaysia because it is not a signatory to the UN Refugee Convention. This means refugees have no legal rights in the country and face arbitrary detention. Malaysia's Human Rights Commission, Suhakam, has described conditions in immigration detention centers as torture-like and hell. Outside of the airport, Osama Sabir is volunteering his time to help. I'm not sure if they put him in the detention, they will release him again. Yeah, he have to stay for a long time because uh, he, he doesn't have legal status. Sabir advised Hassan not to accept an offer to enter Malaysia under a Syrian migrant program started under the previous government. When he first contacted the about his situation, they said, OK, we can't help you. Uh, you have to enter Malaysia, so go and surrender yourself to immigration. I advise him not to do that, frankly speaking, because uh, the situation in the immigration camp, it's really, really horrible. Hi. Uh, this is going to be a little bit longer than usual, so I'm trying uh, to use YouTube. The UN Refugee Agency's Malaysia representative, Richard Toll, says it's a recent trend among asylum seekers and refugees to remain at the airport. We can only help people in that situation if they avail themselves of our protection, and that means, first and foremost, coming into the country, if they're able to do that, coming and sitting with us quietly, and we go through protection and solution outcomes that are viable with them and with other countries. So that's what we do everywhere around the world, and it's what we, it's what we do here. Hassan says he was contacted by UNHCR Malaysia, but that it hasn't provided him any assistance. The UNHCR states that Malaysia hosts 158,620 registered refugees. Refugee rights groups in Malaysia believe the number of unregistered refugees ranges from 40 to 140,000. If people are genuinely stuck at an airport or a port of other, some other description and they're not allowed access, then of course we can go into those zones and see if we can find solutions in situ. Hi, I don't like normally to be serious, but thanks to UNHCR Malaysia. Hassan has spoken out publicly on social media to counter claims he says were made about his case by UNHCR Malaysia. After six months of waiting. Hassan said his only option is to go to Canada. He's willing to wait here at the airport for as long as it takes. Even though there's no guarantee, he remains positive. Oh no, I, I will not fall in depression for sure. I will keep asking the kindness of the uh, Canadian government to, if they can, please expedite my application uh, because I assure them that I will not uh, fail them. Hassan dreams of a comfortable bed, a hot shower, and to be able to breathe fresh air again. He's hoping it will all end with him in Canada, where family and friends await his arrival, and have found him a job. In the meantime, they continue to call on the Canadian government to bring Hassan al-Kantar to Canada immediately. It will take some time. I can understand. It's not their fault. It's their procedure. And if I believe in what I'm doing, then it's the price I need to pay. But it must be taking a toll on you. Oh, I'm so ready for this to be finished. This report was brought to you by Adam Bema in Kuala Lumpur. If you would like to learn more about Hassan, follow him on Instagram at Hassan underscore Al-Kontar, A-L-K-O-N-T-A-R. Myanmar is a country composed of over 100 ethnic groups, with the Bamar as dominant majority group. But the teaching of minority ethnic languages was banned from the state school system for a long time and has only been allowed once more in the last few years. 
Minority ethnic groups continue to struggle amid a context of scarce resources and structural barriers. Faced with these obstacles, the groups have had to seek other avenues to keep their youth in touch with their culture. In Yangon, Victoria Milko finds unexpected venues for ethnic language classrooms, churches. Walk into one of Yangon's churches on a Sunday and you'll be greeted by typical worship activities. People are singing hymns, Bibles are being read, and churchgoers greet each other. But beyond this Christian community gathering, one might be surprised to find that many of Myanmar's churches are also home to something a little less spiritual, ethnic language lessons. Myanmar is comprised over 100 ethnic groups, the predominant group being called Bama. When notorious military general and junta leader Ne Win took power in 1962, he began a campaign of Burmanization, which aimed to homogenize the country through a series of brutal policies. This led to a violent crackdown on ethnic groups across the country, including the banning of teaching of ethnic languages. Since from 1962 to 1988, by General Nguyen government, I might say like this, huh? for during this uh, transitional government, then to social government for about 26 years, they allow us to study up to fourth grade. After 1988, a new revolution government, I might say, huh? first under Somong government and next under Tanshi government for about 22 years, well, totally banned. That's no right to study. That's Salai Thong Ken Pan, an ethnic language teacher at the Sayin Baptist Church in downtown Yangon. The church provides children with lessons in the Chin language, which is predominantly spoken by Chin ethnic groups in western Myanmar. But in recent years, small progress has been made. In 2002, as Myanmar began opening its doors to the outside world, ethnic language instruction was made legal once more. Earlier this year, the Myanmar government announced that it would be investing more in ethnic languages. But Myanmar's educational curriculum still requires that classes be taught outside normal school hours, deterring student attendance. Ethnic language teachers' salaries are also, on average, five times lower than the amount of a normal teacher, providing little incentive for teachers to take on ethnic language jobs. When contacted for an interview about these issues, Deputy Director General of Myanmar's Department of Ethnic Literature and Culture, U Win Neng, refused to comment on the matter. With few solutions being provided by the government, Ethnic groups are left to take matters into their own hands. It's no privilege to learn uh, our own languages in the school. And at, in, in such time, the church, the, the role of the church, uh, play the key role. So since the, uh, any languages cannot be taught, cannot be learned in the government schools, then uh, the church, the churches, Christian churches, took the responsibility to pass on our languages and cultures. That's Paulin Meng, a summer school language teacher at a Chin Baptist church in Yangon. And especially in the summer, uh, summer holidays, so they run, they open summer programs where uh, the children, young, younger generation could learn uh, their own language. Even in this church, we, each year we do this program. So uh, a lot of young people, children, come and then they learn together here. So that's what uh, other ethnic groups also do in their own places, even in the chill hills. So uh, that's uh, the experience that we share together as ethnic groups. His words are likely to resonate with various ethnic groups across the country, with other large ethnic groups such as the Kachin and Karen also holding regular classes at village churches. But there are still obstacles, such as the scarcity of textbooks and teaching supplies in ethnic languages. 
While the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund has been working in cooperation with the government to conduct curriculum training for ethnic language associations so that they can have the capacity to develop textbooks, many smaller ethnic groups still lack the resource support. Each group has to, to, to produce our own texts. So those groups, all our groups, all uh, maybe uh, a little bit small uh, financially or uh, numerically, they, they may not have, they cannot have, they cannot afford to have that kind of, these, you know, uh, good English, uh, good dictionary books and textbooks. And of course, Salaithong Ken Pan says, there's always the challenge of living in an increasingly globalized world. The most difficult that is, most of the children, if they are not interested, then that is the most challenging. <laughs> because where we can use this scene, if I go to the market, nobody speaks Sian. <laughs> if I go out of Myanmar, nobody speaks Sian. Uh, we have to speak in English. So we told them, okay, this important speaking English to speak in Burmese, as well as your language also important this is given from the God. While the teaching of ethnic languages seems to face many hurdles, some remain optimistic. Things seem, seems to be much better uh, than ever, uh, but not quite good enough yet. So I, I hope that this will be getting better in the future uh, when we have a privilege to teach, pass on our own languages to our own children, uh, younger generation. That report was brought to you by Victoria Milko in Yangon. In January of this year, Michael Tataski wrote an article for New Narrative which examined Vietnam's cybersecurity bill. The Vietnam National Assembly approved the cybersecurity law in June, which is expected to come into effect from January 2019. But the bill has been hugely controversial in the country, with experts and activists saying that the law will further restrict freedom of expression and information and could potentially cause economic harm. Nine months on from his article, Callum Stewart speaks to Michael over the phone about developments in the battle over Vietnam's online freedoms. So Mike, thank you uh, for taking the interview today. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be on. Could you just give us a bit of context uh, of Vietnam about what the authorities uh, are doing and how they're concerned about the spread of, of information online? Sure. Um, so obviously Facebook has been around here for a few years now and it's... Um, it's immense. I mean, it basically is the internet for a lot of people. So particularly early, earlier this year, uh, the government started to talk more and more about needing to sort of rein in, you know, social media and some of what's going on there, um, largely under the guise of, you know, wanting to make it a safer space for people, which is certainly admirable. Um, but they also want to make sure there's no, you know, dissent or anti-government discussions taking place there. With regards to that, what sort of reaction have we seen from the, the Vietnamese government uh, towards online discourse? Well, the big one, of course, is the cybersecurity bill, which was passed in early June. It was actually at the same time that this special economic zone bill was being discussed, uh, which is what caused the ma massive protests. And the cybersecurity bill did pass. The gist of it is, at least the main focus for international you know, companies, is that it would, in theory, force companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, to open up offices within Vietnam and also open services here, uh, sorry, servers, which would make it easier for 
officials to control, you know, what's going on on those networks with the name cybersecurity, you know, it's sold as sort of, you know, uh, strengthening national security, protecting people from abuse and those sorts of things online, which those are important. Uh, but there's also no doubt that they, they want to use this to stifle free speech on there as well. Do Google or Facebook have any uh, plans to open offices in Vietnam for, you know, with regards to the cybersecurity bill? I mean, publicly, at least, there hasn't been much of a reaction. Um, I reached out to Google, then their Singapore office, which is where their Vietnam operations are, maybe a month or so ago, and they just said they're still basically, you know, gathering information and waiting to see what happens. So far, there's been no announcements of plans to open an office or anything like that by any of those companies. That being said, Facebook and Google have high level executives have visited Vietnam in the last year or two, and they both companies have taken down a number of accounts and videos and those sorts of things that the government has flagged as being, um, you know, anti-state. So really the big question moving forward in the rest of this year, it's a fascinating one, is what happens if Facebook and Google say, no, we're not going to open an office? Because if they do, that will open them up to a lot of international criticism of, you know, cowing to, you know, authoritarian regime. And if they don't, what will Vietnam do? Um, it's really, it's too late for them to block, simply block Facebook. Uh, people get really pissed off when that happens. So that it's really going to be interesting to see what goes on as, as we near the new year. What has been the reaction to this sort of discussion going on in Vietnam? I mean, have people been outraged about the bill or has it been generally dismissed by most people? I mean, when it, when it passed, uh, a lot of you know, young Vietnamese now I knew were pretty upset. Um, so there, there are a lot of laws here on the books, but it's always a matter of enforcement. So I think everyone is basically just in a wait and see pattern. You know, if we get to January 1st and it's like, oh, Facebook didn't have an open an office, we're shutting it down. Then, then there would be a major reaction. Um, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, it could end up that nothing happens and Facebook con continues operating as normal. Um, so I think, pe again, people are waiting, um, you know, nobody's quite sure what it, what's going to happen. I mean, it has been a, a topic for discussion, but there's also a bit of, you know, apathy when it comes to those sorts of things here. You know, the economy is doing well. A lot of people are kind of just focused on work and improving their livelihoods and those sorts of things. Could you uh, explain a little bit about the media scene in Vietnam and how uh, the authorities have essentially controlled the the media in Vietnam for so long? All of the major media outlets are, if not state-owned, you know, aligned with the state. Um, there's, you know, censorship, particularly before the internet became so widespread. You know, the the big daily state newspapers that was where people got their information, and that was very controlled. And now that Facebook is here and it's unrestricted, a 25-year-old Vietnamese person has the same access to all the same information as someone in the U.S. or Europe or what have you. It had obviously called Vietnamese leadership flat-footed. I mean, they did not realize the impact Facebook and other social networks would have because they didn't, they didn't really do anything when they arrived. I think there were some early efforts to try to restrict them a little bit, but for the past several years, it's just been wide open. And um, for them to go back now and try to turn off the fire hose is going to be really difficult, if not impossible. Obviously, when it comes to things like the spread of fake news, then we've seen it here in Southeast Asia uh, more than a couple of times. A lot of governments have forced policies or are pushing through policies to try and uh, clamp down on fake news. How much of the spread of fake news has there been in Vietnam? It's interesting. That's not a phrase we've 
really seen bandied about by leadership. You know, it certainly hasn't been taken up in the same way that like Duterte or Hun Sen or, you know, some of the leadership in Myanmar has started using that phrase. Of course, there are rumors, you know, I'm not saying there's not. um, Now, granted, Vietnam doesn't have some of the same huge social or, you know, national security problems that some of the neighboring countries have. So that, you know, there's not an issue of fake news, you know, starting a genocide or something like that. With regards to the bill, um, what are the biggest concerns around it? Well, I remember when it passed, one of my one of my Vietnamese friends who's pretty keyed in on all of this, his, his biggest concern was that if minor, what he said is that if a company has data and the government comes to them and says, we want your user data, they will have to comply. They have no choice but to turn it over. Um, so there are major privacy concerns. I mean, of course, this is a global thing at this stage, um, but concerns about user data being shared. Um, and then, and then of course the big, you know, international headline, one is the one we've already talked about, but what will happen with the social media companies? Because, you know, a lot of people do business on Facebook in particular. That's a huge outlet for entrepreneurs. Um, so if that if something happens with that, you know, that will really impact people's daily lives because that's where they do their business. So in Vietnam, uh, barely a few months ago in June, then there were huge, huge nationwide protests. Have the authorities made any moves to further clamp down on the online discourse uh, following those protests? Yeah, in a way, yes. I mean, again, Facebook is still, um, it's still wide open. I mean, one thing I do want to make clear is that, you know, sometimes you see posts from people online, you know, kind of suggesting that Vietnam has a closed internet. It's not. That being said, um, there's been a bunch of arrests recently of people where the you know they get charged with disturbing public order simply for well reportedly calling for you know protests on facebook in a facebook post now it's impossible to after these stories come out to go back and try to find this person on facebook and be like oh did they actually post this um because again this comes out through state media arrests are announced simply announced by the ministry of public security and then it's done and dusted there's no you know debate over whether or not that actually happened um, but it certainly seems like Facebook it, social media posts are being used more and more to as you know for ways to punish people or to try to find people who may be uh, trying to stir up dissent. Yeah, and uh, with regards to the protests, Mike, um, how much, to your knowledge, did the protests spread across Vietnam with regards to social media? How much did the word get out to mobilize people throughout the country? With the caveat, I was actually out of the country at the time. But my understanding is that it, I mean, Facebook is key. Um, I know, I remember seeing a few days beforehand, you know, seeing big posts uh, shared on Facebook, mostly in Vietnamese, um, calling for people to protest this bill. I mean, it was because of people were worried about uh, Chinese influence if this special economic zone bill were to pass. But that's where people were sharing, you know, pictures, videos from around the country. And every, again, everybody is on Facebook, even in rural, you know, remote provinces. So people were able to see what's happening in the major cities where most of the people are. And again, I mean, this is all anecdotal, but there's little doubt that, you know, people were communicating about what was happening. And you even saw with, um, with Will Nguyen, who, you know, got detained during the protests, Afterwards, they, you know, the police announced that they had found his messages on Facebook talking about protests. So it's, it was definitely a way for people to communicate and, you know, decide what they wanted to do, if they wanted to take part or not. 
So the Vietnamese government has spoken in the past about introducing uh, their own state-run social network site, as as we've seen in China. Uh, do you think that there is any serious possibility of this happening? No, I mean, it's, it's possible one will get created. I mean, just this a week or so ago, the Minister of um, information and communications kind of, you know, renewed the call that there needs to be a homegrown social media network to counter Facebook. Uh, the ministry wants to, or has proposed, you know, creating incentives for people to create these networks, but it, it's just, it's simply too late. If somebody comes out here with saying, oh, I created this new Facebook alternative, you know, it's obvious at this point who, who will be behind it. You know, it'll be, if not government run, government connected, that means the data is going through, you know, the government, uh, simply, you know, like WeChat in China, um, it's just far too late. If they had done this seven or eight years ago when Facebook was brand new here, then it would have been a possibility, but it's just way too late for that to happen. Mike, thank you very much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. That was Callum Stewart speaking with Michael Tataski, who's based in Ho Chi Minh City. Michael's story can be found on newnarrative.com in English and Vietnamese. In August 2018, Tegu Harahap wrote an article called Struggling with Stigma, Indonesia's LGBTQ Exorcisms. Tegu's article examined Rukia, a popular practice in the country with the largest Muslim population in the world. While often used as a cultural practice, Rukia has also been touted as a so-called treatment to turn LGBTQ people straight. Under enormous pressure in the face of anti-LGBTQ stigma, queer Indonesians have sought out Rukia practitioners to try to cure themselves. Tegu recounts his experience of reporting on Rukia in North Sumatra. In Islam, Rukia exorcism have special place for Muslims. They are essentially a form of medication. I think the reason for this is because many Indonesians still believe in things connected to the supernatural, like ghosts, demons, and voodoo. And Rukia in Indonesia is just a part of this culture. I enjoy writing about issues in Indonesia that have direct impact on people. You can say there are sympathetic articles, but there's something deeper than that. I want to tell people about what happens on the ground in Indonesia and how some communities struggle to survive in their own country. Many people face regulations and policies issued by the government which are contrary to their way of living. The LGBT community is a classic example of this. When I met Ritwan Shutorus, the Rukia practitioner I interviewed for my article, I thought that he was a nice and friendly person. He was open and answered all my questions politely, so I felt comfortable interviewing him. It was strange because he was so nice. I expected him to be very judgmental and negative about the LGBT community, but he just said he wants to help. I watched him recite verses from the Quran while rubbing the back of the patients to make the demons come out. He claims the demons caused the patient to be LGBT. It's different from the way it's portrayed in the media. On television shows, Rukia usually involves a patient suddenly becoming possessive and losing control. And there are often fight scenes between the Rukia practitioner and the demons he believes have taken control of the patient's body. 
This representation of the process has never seemed logical to me, so I was interested in seeing it for myself. It was almost calm and completely different to what I understood it to be. I don't condemn Ridwan for his practice. Rukia is allowed in Islam. As I wrote in my article, it can be used for a variety of things, such dealings with health issues, and it can encourage us Muslims to utilize the usefulness of the Quran in life. But pushing Rukia as a treatment for homosexuality can increase the stigma against LGBT people and increase the pressure of LGBT people to get cured. It's not what Rukia should be used for. I think this story tells us how the LGBT community in Indonesia is pushed into a corner. They are made to choose between living with their identity or living in a way society deems normal. LGBT people in Indonesia face a lot of stigma in society and from their families and friends. It's also an issue that has been neglected by Indonesian's government. Maybe the authorities prefer to spend their effort and time dealing with issues that have greater political millage come elections. But they have to know that the LGBT issue is very important. For some people, this issue is more important than any other issue of ideology that Indonesian governments have spent lots of time and effort on. For the LGBT community, this is about their lives, and they are the part of Indonesia too. Unfortunately, in the future, I think the situations will get worse for the LGBT community. Indonesia will have a presidential elections in April next year. We already know who the presidential candidates will be. Current Indonesian President Joko Widodo and former Major General Prabowo Subianto. I've seen the atmosphere of the elections and I think whoever the winner is, it won't be good news for the country's LGBT community. If many people in Indonesia believe that Rukia can repel demonic disorders in the body, I think it will be much better if Rukia can be used to kill government officials because many of them have similar attitude to demons. That was Teguh Harahap reflecting on his meeting with a Rukia practitioner and the state of LGBTQ rights in Indonesia. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Adam Bema, Victoria Milko, Michael Tataski, Callum Stewart and Teguh Harahap for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week for our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. Check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa! Thank you.